Well, next Sunday, Lord willing, we begin a new series in the Gospel according to Mark. But last Sunday and this Sunday, we've taken a couple of weeks to talk about a fresh strategy to how we approach uh, Sunday mornings together as a church. We talked about one of three components last week. We'll talk about two of them this week. The one we talked about last week is the most important. It's what's essential for Sunday morning, and that's corporate worship. God's people in God's presence for God's praise under his word. We looked at Hebrews 10 and once again learned or remembered the importance of corporate worship, that it is essentially a meeting in the heavenlies. We're drawn up to heaven itself. We've come to Mount Zion. We've entered holy places when we meet together like this. And so it must be a priority. There should be consistency. We also applied this to families with children. And we said from a relatively young age, as early as kids are able to be still and and not be too distracting for us, at a relatively young age, children should be with their parents in corporate worship. Kids should see mom and dad go hard after God in corporate worship. They should see lofty and weighty and passionate worship like this. And quite honestly, if our kids got nothing out of any given Sunday, then nothing other than the observation that God is big and his worship is big and mom and dad think so, that would be a powerful lesson on any given Sunday. Well, I don't want to review what we talked about last week. There are a number of ways you can catch up on that. If you missed last week, you can watch the sermon online or listen to it online. Uh, We also have these handy brochures now printed here in-house. This is a little article written by John and Noel Piper called The Family Together in God's Presence. And this will be outside those doors on the the bulletin stands, usually right there. Uh, They'll be out there after the service, and you can pick some of those up uh, if you're interested in thinking about that some more. That was last week, corporate worship as a priority and as a familial priority. This week, I want to talk about two other components to Sunday morning, study and service, or learning and service. Inside your bulletin this morning, you have some additional inserts that are related to study and service, and we'll get to those later on. But let's start where we should where we must start, with God's word. Turn to Ephesians 4 with me, if you would. Ephesians 4, a classic passage on the body of Christ, the church, what it is, how it works, and what it's to do. We're going to focus on verses 7 to 16, but I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Chapter 4 reads, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, quoting Psalm 68, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. 
In saying he descended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the, the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We might have noticed that growth is a major emphasis in these verses. We are to no longer be children, but of full stature. We're to build up and be built up. We're to attain. We're to grow up in every way. The body grows as it builds itself up in love. But how does a church grow? How does a church grow? Well, notice that the passage says nothing about church size or numbers. It might be true that generally speaking, a healthy church does grow as God adds to their number. But it's not here in the passage. Growth here is clearly spiritual growth, not numerical growth that Paul has in mind. We can answer that question, how does a church grow, in terms of three G's. The first G's in verses 1 through 6, it grows on the right ground or basis. And then verses 7 to 11, it grows with God-given gifts. And then verses 12 to 16, it grows with the right goals. So ground, gifts, and goals. We won't talk about the ground too much today, verses 1 through 6. That's the basis. We'll assume it, and we will focus on the gifts and the goals of Ephesians 4 just for time's sake. So first we see varied gifts here, varied gifts in the first few verses, starting in verse 7. Verse 7 says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The grace he's speaking about here isn't salvation grace, saving grace, but ministerial grace. And not grace given to ministers, like you might think, like a capital M minister, a pastor, a clergyman. No, this is grace given or a gift given to anyone and everyone in the body of Christ to minister to the body of Christ. Sometimes grace is used in this sort of way. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul uses grace this way, referring to a gift. To me, grace was given. What grace? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's his gift. And every Christian has a gift. It's not as clear as it was to Paul what yours is and what mine is sometimes, but every Christian has a gift from Christ. Verse 7 says, grace or a gift was given to each one of us. There are no exceptions. It's not based on IQ. It's not based on good looks or introvert versus extrovert. 
It's not based on anything. Every Christian is in the gifted program, you could say. And that means that there's diversity of gifts in the body of Christ. We know that just from experience, right? Every Christian has a gift, but they're not all the same. There's diversity, and purposely so. Listen to Romans 12 on this, maybe a classic, maybe the classic passage on the body and the gifts. There Paul says, For as in one body, a human body, we have many members or parts, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many Christians, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. And then he lists some examples. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. These are graces or gifts to be used. This is one list of about six in the New Testament that lists gifts, spiritual gifts we could call them. Another one is in our passage a little bit later here in verse 11. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. But what you should know about these lists, these lists of gifts in the New Testament, uh, none are exactly the same and none is exhaustive. None are exhaustive. What some people mistakenly do then is compile a master list of spiritual gifts based on these six different lists. And then they'll say, okay, here, here are the options. You've got 13 or so or 14 options. What do you think? Where, where do you see yourself? Where, where, uh, what kind of things do you like to do? What kind of things have you seen God bless? Okay, there, that's, you have the gift of administration. And we should think about those gifts listed in the Bible in terms of our own giftedness and desires, yes. But if Paul was thinking along those lines that we should compile a list of 13 or 14 so, and that's the list, then it seems surprising that he didn't put one of those lists in one of these passages. Why he would use different lists at different times in different places in different letters, It seems like he would put a master list in every church letter if that's what we needed, but instead he didn't. Probably because he was just giving lists as suggestive ideas, categories, kinds of gifts, kinds of people, kinds of tasks, kinds of needs that need to be met. The goal with spiritual gifts is not to to discover it and focus on it, to the neglect of other things that the New Testament calls every Christian to do. So if you said, I I have the gift of hospitality, I would say, great, when can we come over? But if you said, I have the gift of hospitality, and that's it, God hasn't given me any other gift, I don't do anything else. I would say, oh, you're missing out. You're missing out on so much the New Testament has for Christians in relation to other Christians. And sure, there are some things that are more or less enjoyable to us. Each of us is better at some things than other things. That's not unrelated to spiritual gifts. But we have to remember first and foremost that spiritual gifts are given to us for others. They're for others, first and foremost. Spiritual gifts are not Jesus' plan for my own personal fulfillment. But 
Jesus' plan for others' growth through me. Which means that we should consider not just preferences and skills and desires, but we should also consider need and opportunity. In your body, sometimes a part of your body does something that it wasn't really designed to do. God didn't make it that way. You could probably pick up some keys with your toes, even though your toes are not part of a hand, right? You can do it. You can make shift. It'll make do if you need to. Well, in the same way, in the body of Christ, there are needs. There are needs that need to be met, and sometimes a hand has to function like a, a foot and kick someone out of the way, or, or, or a foot needs to function something like a hand and pick something up that's, that's needed. But, the, but the, the basis for these gifts is clearly Christ's death and resurrection, according to verse 8. 9 and 10. That's that section there. It was kind of confusing with the ascended and descended. You see, in verse 8, Paul's quoting a line from Psalm 68, as I said. He ascended on high, and he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Psalm 68, written at the time of David, is looking back to the time of Exodus, when God rescued his people from bondage and tyranny in Egypt, and he set them free. And he not just led them out, but he also led them up to Jerusalem eventually. He ascended in that sense. And when he led them up in his victory train, he was bringing gifts. Gifts. Of course, first and foremost, and eventually, that meant the promised land. He led them out, he led them up, and he gave gifts. So Paul borrows that language from Psalm 68, and he applies it to Jesus' resurrection and ascension. He says, Jesus descended, he came to earth, and he also died. He descended into death. But he also ascended, the resurrection and later the ascension. That was his victory. And, it, and by grace, through faith, it is our victory. He leads us into life, into resurrection, into gifts. He gives gifts. So spiritual gifts are blood-bought. They're Christ-wrought. They're uniquely designed for every Christian. They're mysterious. It's not something you just slap a label on. Each Christian, though, has been gifted to be used in ministry for the church, not as a, an expression of self or for self, but for others. And it comes in the wake of, or in the comet trail of Jesus' glorious resurrection and ascension. So needless to say, it's something we don't want to neglect. Right? If it's blood-bought, if it comes in the comet trail of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, it's kind of a big deal to not use the gift he's given or the gifts he gives. How many of us have been caught not using a gift that someone gave you? Your aunt comes over and sees in the closet the sweater from four years ago with the tag still on it. Or something like that. We've all been caught not using the gift that was given to us. This is a precious gift. We need to use it. Then Paul lists some specific gifts. Verse 11. Here's another one of those gift lists in the New Testament. 
He says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, the first two of these are is foundational. The first two are foundational to the New Testament and to the New Testament era. We know that because of Ephesians 2. Would you turn back there? There we see apostles and prophets put together. Ephesians 2, verse 19, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Here, prophets isn't referring to Old Testament prophets, nor of New Testament prophets who would at times have insight from the Lord about a situation, like Agabus warning Paul, you go to Jerusalem, you're going to die there. That's a prophet, but it's not this kind of prophet. This is sort of a capital P prophet that goes along with the apostolic ministry. An example would be Luke, a guy who wrote Luke and Acts, a lot of the New Testament, and yet wasn't an apostle, but did a very apostle-like things, like writing Bible. The New Testament, in our faith, the church was built upon the foundation of apostles and apostle-like guys like Luke, called prophets many times. They go together. As for evangelists, in verse 11, it's likely that these are what we today call missionaries. Not those who stay home and spread the gospel, but those who go away with the gospel to where it hasn't yet gone. Shepherds and teachers. Some people put shepherds and teachers together as one office or gift. Pastor hyphen teacher. But I think there's good reason to keep them separate since teachers are in a category elsewhere in the New Testament. That means that all shepherds do teach, but not all teachers preach or teach. Sorry, not all teachers are pastors. Not all teachers are shepherds. Teachers are those who are under pastoral authority in a church, but, but still lead. They teach in a Sunday school class, or they lead a community group, or they teach a, man's, a men's Bible study. But shepherds, as the name implies... They're those who are tasked with oversight of the sheep. They lead the sheep like a shepherd leads sheep with protection for the sheep, with feeding of the sheep. They are those who will give an account for the sheep one day. So that's what we see first, varying gifts. Now there's another section, overlapping goals. Verses 12 to 16, we see overlapping goals, and we see five different ones. They're overlapping, interrelated, intermingled somewhat. The first one's very clear, easy to follow. follows right from the list that was given in verse 11 of these gifts or people gifts. You see, at the end of verse 11, he gave shepherds and teachers, why? To equip the saints. So there's the first goal, to equip he gave them to equip the saints. That word equip means to fix what is broken or to supply what is lacking. So God gave us his word and he gave us shepherds and teachers to fix what is broken. And things are always going to be broken this side of heaven. We'll never be fully complete and fully equipped. He gave shepherds and teachers to supply what is lacking. 
and will always be lacking this side of heaven. Yes, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and yet we have forms of them and shadows of them, and we have them in foreshadows, bits and pieces at times, and we, our flesh gets in the way. We, we corrupt it. We have every blessing, but not yet fully in our possession or in our exercising. And so we need ongoing equipping. That happens on Sunday morning. That happens in corporate worship. It's happening right now. There's a shepherd who is equipping. But it also happens in a variety of other contexts and places, like community groups, like Bible studies of various kinds, classes that we might have on Sunday mornings. We need to be equipped. It's ongoing. But equipped for what? Well, secondly, for ministry. In verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. One thing this implies is that being equipped is not just receiving knowledge. Being equipped is for something. Being equipped is given tools. But those are tools that are to be exercised and used with increasing skill. And they're to be used on others. We're not to be equipped merely for our own benefit, just like gifts are not merely gifts for us, but also assignments. Equipping is for the work of ministry. And who does ministry according to Ephesians 4? It says the saints. All of us, the saints. Some may focus on equipping. I would say I do that in this church. I focus on equipping. But, but all saints, even equippers included, are called to the work of ministry for the building up of the body. Do you realize how many layers we've already seen in this passage so far? How many layers that have been passed down. You've got Christ giving grace and gifts to his people. They're now gifted. They're also utilizing, standing on the foundation of apostles and prophets, and then using, benefiting from those who equip, shepherds and teachers. And then they're together to, to minister to each other, to build each other up. We need all that to grow. John Piper points out how remarkable the need is for the body of Christ in this passage. How needy the body of Christ is. He says, the body needs a lot of work done on it. Let that sink in a minute. It'll help, us, it'll help keep us from being discouraged when we realize how imperfect the church is. It starts with people becoming believers and receiving grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Then all these saints need to avail themselves of leaders who equip them for ministry. But whom is that ministry for? It's for all those, the same saints who are ministering, the body of Christ. So in spite of the fact that all the saints are gifted with the grace directly from Christ himself, we all need the ministry of the saints to build us up. And not only that, we need the leader saints, too, to fix us and supply us in ways that help us to be ministering saints to others. We are indeed needy. Not just individually, but the body is needy. And that's all according to plan, isn't it? That's Jesus' plan. Do you realize Jesus could have given us every bit of grace and every ounce of gift and 
every capacity for growth in and of ourselves, independent of each other. He could have. He can do anything he wants. But he chose not to. He chose that we would have each other as conduits of his grace and gifting for our growth. He made us inherently dependent on each other. You don't have enough grace in you to do this alone. And Jesus designed it just that way. We keep talking about ministry, but what is it? What is ministry here in Ephesians 4? That's almost anything that the New Testament calls Christians to do with and for each other. You name it. It could be teaching. It could be counseling. It could be praying. It could be weeping with someone who's weeping. Or it could be more physical, more practical, caring for physical needs, acts of service. In fact, that's one way you could translate work of ministry is acts of service. And here's where different gifts get played out differently in the church. Peter, in 1 Peter 4, divides the, the gifts up into just two categories. He's got the simplest gift list of all. He says there's speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. And whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So some of us in this room are more inclined to a speaking gift, speaking ministry. And others in this room are more inclined to a serving gift, serving ministry. But there is no hierarchy. There is no rank between those two. Serving isn't for those who are less gifted. Jesus, the perfect man, spoke and served, right? Isn't that what we learn in Philippians 2? We're to look out for others' interests, and we're to serve each other, and we're, sure, we're to be humble and, and sacrifice. This is the mind of Christ. This is what he did. He humbled himself. He not only took on flesh, but he took on the cross for us, for our sin. No serving was beneath him. Not washing the disciples' feet, nor dying in their place. And it's not just Jesus who models for us the glory and beauty of sacrifice and serving. We saw a couple of weeks ago from 2 Corinthians 8, this passing comment there, that messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ, can go together somehow. These messengers simply took money from one church to another. I'm sure they could do more than that, but in that case, that's all their messaging was doing. It was taking money from one place to another. And they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. It's not clear whether glory of Christ is referring to the churches or to the messengers, but either way, it's very lofty language for something we think of as pretty simple. So too with Epaphroditus in Philippians 2 Paul called him my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. What did he do? He brought the Philippians' funds to Paul. He almost died doing it, but that's all he had to do is get the funds to Paul. And Paul called him a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, your messenger and minister. 
or Onesiphorus in 2 Timothy 1. Paul says of him, he often refreshes me. He writes to Timothy, you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. And we don't know exactly what Onesiphorus did. We don't know whether this ministry, this service, this refreshing was purely spiritual, whether it was a mix, it was also physical. We know that it embodies, though, Ephesians 4, its ministry for the building up of the body of Christ, whether that is purely physical or spiritual or some mix. A third goal is for unity. According to verse 13, a goal is unity until we all attain to the unity of the faith. We're not just growing together. We're actually growing into each other, as weird as that sounds. We don't grow together like two plants in one room grow separate of each other. They just happen to be in the same room. We grow into each other. We're growing in to Christ. Because we have union in Christ, we have oneness with each other, and that should be increasingly recognized and experienced in the body of Christ. In fact, it will be increasingly recognized and experienced in the body of Christ. Ultimately, that's where we're going. A unified body, one man in Christ. Oh, I know along the way, sometimes we go backwards, not forwards. Sometimes there's division and not love and unity, but, but it's based on the unity we have with God himself. It's not a unity that's based on things that are quickly changing, externals. If this church were based simply on a certain economic identity or cultural identity or ethnic identity or age demographic, and as that changed, then we would change. We'd have to change. The basis for our unity would change. But it's not. It's based on one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. That's unchanging. And we actually grow in our unity. We're further united through the diversity of our gifts. The diversity of our gifts, not... It doesn't compete with our unity, but it supports and amplifies, grows our unity. We're also united in and through our minds or truth. You see, that's the fourth goal, for knowledge or discernment. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that, verse 14, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This all relates to that first goal in verse 12, equip. We're to be equipped for ministry to others. We're also to be equipped for discernment. We're to grow in Christ, yes, we're to grow in Christ-likeness, grow in spiritual maturity, but we're also to grow in spiritual and theological stability. We don't want to be blown here and there. We don't want to be childlike. We don't want to be like a toddler in the ocean, helpless. Wave comes, he moves, right? That's it, that's the physics involved. 
Wave hits, toddler, toddler goes. That's tossed to and fro. And we don't want every little bit of crafty falsehood that's out there to pick us up like a tornado and hurl us across the world. We, we don't want to be tossed to and fro. We don't want to be swept away by every little bit of crafty falsehood that's out there. And so we need to be equipped and we need to be building each other up. Again, this happens in a variety of contexts. Sunday morning, like now, kids in their classes right now, youth group that's happening right now, community groups that will happen throughout the week, Bible studies that will happen throughout the week, not to mention personal Bible study, reading good books and talking about them with each other, but reading them independently, all that is still part of us growing in knowledge and discernment and truth. It's keeping us from being tossed to and fro and being blown about by everything that comes around. The last goal is growth. We come back to where we started. Growth has already been implied already, but now it sort of culminates in verses 15 and 16. And really, all of the previous goals we talked about culminate in verses 15 and 16. It says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is mind-blowingly multidimensional and multifaceted. If you're a diagram geek, I'd love to see your diagram of these two verses. Diagram sentences, you know. It's a tough one to diagram. It's not clear exactly what, what Paul is amplifying and then developing and all that. But, but let's just leave that aside. Let's just think about the multifaceted growth that's being talked about in these verses. These verses are telling us that we grow together. The body grows in Ephesians 4, not Christians who happen to go to the same church. The body grows as a group. We grow in truth. We grow in knowledge and discernment. We're to grow in the exercise of our gifts. We're to grow in love. We're to grow by being equipped and equipping. We're to grow in ministry and service to each other. We're to grow in speaking to each other, speaking truth in love. And that doesn't mean, by the way, something like, you're ugly, but I love you. So speak the truth in love means I got to tell him something hard. He doesn't want to hear it, but I'll put something nice at the beginning or at the end. No, the truth being talked about here is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. It's theological. It's, it's, not, it's not just rebuke that you don't want to do, but you'll do it in love because you should. It's truth. Speak truth to one another. We should grow in that. Grow in our oneness and our corporate identity. Grow in our connectedness to each other. It's when each part is working properly that the body grows. We grow into Christ, grow into Christ-likeness. It's a package deal. Christians don't grow independently and then just use church as an avenue for stimuli, spiritual stimuli. The church isn't one resource for your growth, albeit an important one. 
You see, it's not like what the library is for your kids' education. It's there. Sometimes you use it. Sometimes it's beneficial. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you go in seasons where you forgot about it. That's not the church. The church is more like a family. Ephesians 1 said that. We've been adopted. The church is more like a marriage. Ephesians 5 says that. We are the bride of Christ. The church is more like a body. A body with different parts doing different things, but together as a whole. Not two hands that occasionally get together every Tuesday for lunch. A body, a full expression of a body. You see the difference between two hands getting together every Tuesday for lunch and simply putting over the banner, where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst. This is church. No, that's not what that verse means. Two and three getting together is a great thing. But a body is a diverse group of different members doing different things for the good of the whole. We grow together. And in large part, we grow together by studying together and serving together. So ask yourself, if every member of this church were just like you, just as involved, just as serving, just as sacrificial, just as giving, what would this church be like, better or worse, if everyone were just like you? Another way to ask the question is to say, what is Desert Springs Church getting from you? And I don't mean Desert Springs Church as an institution. I don't mean a building, a budget, or simply leaders. I mean, what is the organization, the organism of Desert Springs Church, the body, getting from you? What are you doing in the body and to the body and for the body? Has Christ given you a gift or gifts that you've simply shelved? Have you simply shelved them? Have you been equipped only so you can think more deeply and pray more fervently and forgotten that equipping is for others? We could apply this in a number of different ways. We could talk about membership and covenanting together, knowing who's in and who's out, who's with us and wants to do this kind of church or not. We could talk about community groups where, where so much of Ephesians 4 gets fleshed out week in and week out. We've done that in other Sundays. Today I want to, in just the rest of our time together, focus on Sunday morning, Sunday morning opportunities and strategies. I want to give you a multi-layered strategy for Sunday morning at Desert Springs, uh, connecting this week with last week. So here it is. The first layer, first priority is corporate worship. This, the meeting of the church together. At 9 or 1045 on a Sunday morning, this is what we do. This is where we are. This is the first priority for Sunday morning. Whatever else we do, whether classes or serving we do, this is the most important thing we do. This is meeting with Mount Zion. This is entering the holy places. So especially for adults, if you ever have to choose between this meeting and serving elsewhere in this building, choose this meeting, okay? Choose this meeting. Going to church, like showing up and doing something there, is not the same thing as meeting with the living God with his people in his presence for his praise. I also said last week that we want to encourage families with children who are at an age where they can begin to sit still to have them 
with you, with their parents in corporate worship. But maybe you're wondering, Ryan, does this mean that you don't want kids in their classes, in children's ministry, in age-graded classes? No. The answer is no to that. We, we want kids in classes. Our kids' classes are good and thoughtful and careful and theological and, and caring. I can't commend them enough. Our kids have been in children's ministry here and now youth ministry uh, for 11 years. But you might also be wondering, Ryan, if my math is correct then, that means we have to be here for 9 o'clock and 1045, whatever order we put those in, worship and kids' class. And I would say to that, you're correct. Your math is correct there. That, you're, you're right. We're talking about two slots here on a Sunday morning, and that might be an adjustment for some of you. You might be thinking, okay, well then if two slots are required for Sunday morning, kids with us and kids also in classes, then what are parents doing in, in one of those slots when they're not in corporate worship? Well, we have two options for you. Here's the 2A and 2B. The first is equip class. Equip class. We just are about to start this. October 5th it starts. It's a weekly Sunday class for adult discipleship that meets at 1045. It will be every week. Uh, in years past, we've done classes that have kind of been sporadic or here or there. This will be every week. You can jump in any time. And every two months, there'll be a new topic that, that begins. You see on the back of this teal card that you have uh, in your bulletin this morning, as you can see there, the schedule. October, November, we're studying Joshua. December and January, guidance, wisdom, and the will of God. So this will be two months, eight weeks or nine weeks, whatever it takes. And um, we'll move on to new topics each time. We want to encourage this class. The reasons should be obvious. We need more equipping, right? Ephesians 4 told us that. We know we need more equipping. We need more Bible. We need a diverse intake of Bible. Last year we worked through 1 Samuel on Sunday mornings here. That's a, that's a niche of God's word that we rightly camped out in for a while. But it would also be good to have a breadth of Bible intake going on as well. A class would, would do that. Imagine being in Sermon on the Mount on Sunday morning in a class and in 1 Samuel here in corporate worship at the same time. That would be helpful. It's also more conducive to families with kids who are going to do corporate worship together and also a class time for their kids. For years we haven't had an adult Sunday school class uh, or class program and we don't have the space for it. But we're going to do this. We're going to offer this equipped class. And it will be a study of biblical books and passages as well as topics. Practical and theological topics. But here's a clarification now. We can't fit everyone in this room at 9 o'clock. And so if you're thinking, that's it. You're calling the whole church to come to corporate worship at 9 and then this equipped class at 1045 the answer to that is no, we can't do that. We wouldn't have the room for it. So this is 2A and 2B. Corporate worship is essential, and then the 2A and 2B are either or. And we're asking you to think about rotating between those two on a two to four month basis. So you go to a class for two to four months and then look for an opportunity to serve. They go together. Or vice versa, you serve starting in October, maybe, and then two or four months later, you, you go to an equip class. 
One of the reasons we're, we're doing this is to, to try to free up long-time servers, nursery workers, Sunday school teachers from the week-in, week-out commitment they've made for so many years and, and hence have been unable to take a class on a Sunday morning. We want more servers and servants who can help them study. It's the body working as the body. Let's talk about serving quickly. Here's this white card you have uh, also in your bulletin. Would you pull that out? On the front page, these are related to kids. Some of these opportunities are teaching opportunities. Some are more practical. But these represent a lot of spaces or bodies or hours, you could say. Uh, It's not just as many as here are represented in those boxes. So many opportunities, and it's massively important. You're teaching kids doctrine, teaching kids Bible. Who knows how God will use that in years to come? Maybe you're not teaching, but you're helping, you're assisting, you're facilitating, you're doing something that supports the instruction of young kids in God's truth. It's a good thing. As are things like greeting for children's ministry, or if you flip this over, in the back, there's parent pager at the top there. That's when you check your kids in. We need people there who are warm and kind and able on computers and are really a first impression to visitors. As are the other things in the back of this. A coffee counter, you know, when you go and have coffee or a cookie afterwards. The safety team, greeting and visitors kiosk. Just think of how how important these are for visitors who come into Desert Springs Church. You could be the first impression for that person for, of Desert Springs Church. And that might scare you. You might think, I don't want to be anyone's first impression, actually. I got married. I'm good now. So, uh, but, but think of it the other way. Someone is going to be a visitor's first impression of Desert Springs Church. Let's hope it's someone with a smile, Right? Not a snarl. Um, Really, these are hospitality things, aren't they? Hospitality isn't just having people to your home for a meal. Hospitality is serving people with warmth and welcomeness. I don't know if that's a word, but you know, you get the idea. It's serving them with warmth and welcomeness. Think of how these are all opportunities to, to get to know other people in this church. They're avenues for relationships and future relationships. It's a way to get more connected, and it's a way for you to make others feel more connected. Desert Springs, this is something we're not good at. We haven't been good at it for years. We keep getting better in centimeter-like steps, but we're not known for being a warm and welcoming church to those who visit us. I think when you get in deep, oh, there's plenty of warmth and love there, but we're not good at the first impression stuff, we could grow in that. For the sake of those who visit us, for the sake of unbelievers, for the sake of potential future members that we want to love and partner with. And I'll just say this in closing. Each one of these, really, not to overstate it, is nothing less than tone-setting and culture-making for our church. If you think about it, we want warmth and joy and fellowship and kindness and love and ministry to grow in this body as a reflection of Christ and his kind hospitality to us. How will that happen? Well, one person at a time, loving more, smiling more, caring more, serving a little bit more. 
So maybe you'll decide to sign up for this upcoming equip class and study Joshua for a couple of months. You'll need to register online for that. For others, you might commit to serve in one of these areas on the white card. You can fill this out today and drop it in one of the offering boxes and we'll get back in touch with you. Are these things explicit in Ephesians 4? No, of course not. But remember, Hebrews 10 tells us to consider how to stir up love and good works. So this is our latest and best attempt as elders to consider how to stir up love and good works, at least on Sunday mornings. We hope you'll be with us for it. We don't know if we've considered how long enough or whether there will be no snafus whatsoever. I'm sure there'll be questions we haven't thought of, and we'll answer those as they come up. But it's the best how we've come up so, with so far for Sunday morning. And if someday we find a better how, well, we'll do that. The Bible gives us freedom in these things. But most important is Christ's blood having been sprinkled on our account for the cleansing of sins, the entering into his body with others in fellowship and unity and love, for the building up of each other, for the use of his gifts which he bought and he gave to us for the use of others. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We confess that we're sinners and selfish and lazy and insulary and insecure too. We pray you would free us from that through the blood of Christ with the forgiveness of sins. We believe Jesus paid for those sins too. And we pray he can not only forgive, but he can grant us power to live for others. We pray we'd see more of that here. We pray we would reflect your glory and love and goodness more here. We thank you for Christ, our one sure foundation. It's in his name that we pray. It's in his name now that we sing. Amen.